Uh, it, is, it is an interesting world in which we find ourselves here in 2022. Uh, so we're going to reverently attend to the public reading of Scripture. Before I do, I want to look at the word cloud that we present in front of us each week. Uh, it's a reminder of what is important. Uh, and I raise these things over and over because, you know, if, if the Bible, which is right there big and center, if the Bible is important to you, then it's important. And if the Bible is not important to you, then it'll not be noticed. It'll be missing from your daily life. It won't be coming off and flowing off your lips. It won't be bound as the frontlets of your eyes or even on the doorposts of your, of your uh, house or my sister used to do, she used to put it on the speedometer of her car as well as her mirror in the bathroom. The Word of God is so important. When you come to New Covenant, if you're a part of this fellowship, you can be assured that the Bible will be open. And I'm hoping that your Bible will also be read. And I hope that joke doesn't get old. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to Romans 12. We're going to be looking at the gospel that's presented there because every service that come, we gather here, we open the word of God, we show you what's in scripture and it points us to Jesus who is the author and finisher of the faith who for the joy that was set before him endured that cross and he despised the shame and he purchased a place in heaven for us. It's a beautiful thing. And when you realize that the Bible is center because it brings out the gospel, then you can see how all the other things flow, whether we have a multi-generational aspect where we can all worship to God together, whether you're young or old, where we can blend, that you can bring some kind of a heritage that you have. If you came from an austere, rigorous, high liturgical service, or if you came from a beach service someplace, you can gather at New Covenant and there will be days when we will have a be still Reverend Sunday, and we'll also have some celebrate Sundays, even wearing Hawaiian shirts. And even this summer, you might even see the pastor with shorts. You know, why? Because there is this huge blend. As we come, our goal is to meet with God. We care, we're missional, we're friendly, we're covenantal, we're reformed. All those things are important. And uh, if you're wanting to know more and identify with this local body, please join come to one of our inquirers seminars. Now, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to our text and let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12. And instead of the familiar verses that you're used to, I'm going to be reading a, a few more. But since you already are familiar with some of the regular ones, we're going to first uh, I want to go ahead and read our text today, which is actually from verses 3 down to verse 8. Verses 3 to 8 with an emphasis there in the middle, but I'm going to also go back and read chapter 12 uh, again. So this, the text that we're looking at today is, uh, For by grace given to me, this is Paul writing to Christians in Rome, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Each person according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to that person. Then he goes on in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he gives a list. Uh, two of them are with the ifs. If prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. And if service, then in our serving. And then he goes to give five examples. 
The one who teaches in his service of teaching. The one who exhorts in his service of exhortation. The one who contributes in his service of generosity. The one who leads with the service or with a zealous service. And the one who acts, who does acts of mercy with the service of cheerfulness or with a cheerful countenance. And he goes on to say, then let love be genuine. And we'll pick that up next week. Again, if you've been exposed to this text for the first time, let me reread it for you a little bit so you can follow along. The apostle has just written some of the greatest doctrinal pieces that, is, that have ever been penned. The Holy Spirit has been working on this, this individual. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a smart guy. If he took the SAT test or the ACT, I'm sure he would have gotten one of those high scores. But he was on the wrong side. He was a part of the religious community. I'm talking about Saul before he turned to Paul. He was zealous. He went to the, the erudite schools. He had all the privileges you could imagine. You know, being a Jew himself, he, he knew how the system worked, and he worked the system. But then there was this problem that came up. There was these weird people who believed this guy rose from the dead. This, this, they talked about this fellow that was a kind of a loser. He didn't have an army. He didn't have a lot of, of money. He didn't wear fancy clothes. He didn't have a palace. He didn't even have a place to stay. And, and, and Saul was thinking, what is wrong with those people? And so the logical thing for him to do was... Let's get rid of them. Let's not let them get around. And, you know, if Facebook had been back there, I'm sure they would have canceled. You know, he would have gone to Zuckerberg or those other people and said, get that, in, that, that dis disinformation off of the web. Don't tell us about somebody rising from the dead. That's crazy. Everybody knows it's crazy. And the Apostle Paul, in his early days, he was guilty of all those things. It wasn't until Jesus grabbed his personal attention. Acts chapter 9, you can read the details. Once Jesus showed, revealed himself to him, his name was changed. In theory, his eyes were blinded, but in reality, his spiritual eyes were opened. And all of these things that he had studied about the Old Testament now made sense. When he writes this letter to the people in Rome, he is giving you the benefit of all this wonderful education and his personal relationship with Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit working in his life. He now has given them the doctrines of, of condemnation and the doctrines of justification and the doctrines of sanctification and the doctrines of imputation of righteousness. I wanted to impress you with a big vocabulary. Now, if you were in Rome getting this book, you've already read the first 11 chapters. Your, your jaw's probably down here. You know, you can barely repeat some of these terms, but they're so powerful, so clear. He's finally explained so much, and in chapter 12, he kind of shifts a little bit. Because now, instead of it understanding your head and your heart, now he's trying to tell you what to do with your hands. It's not just what you believe and what you feel, but now it's what you do. And listen how it says in Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at, at the, uh, the flow of the text here. I'm going to be reading in the old King James, but you can follow along there. Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and it's your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. 
For I say that through the grace that's been given to me, to everyone who is among you there in Rome, not to think of yourselves higher than you ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. Then, having these gifts, differing according to the grace that God has given us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or in ministry, let us use it in our ministering. So if we teach in teaching, if we exhort in exhortation, he who gives in liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now do you see the flow? Do you see the passion of the preacher when he's reaching out to them and saying, hey, it's not just this, and it's not just this. It's what you're going to do with these and what you're going to, where you're going to go with these. How do you live the Christian life? How many of you are living the Christian life very well right now? Are you a perfect example? Please stand up. I'd like to follow your example. Now, the people in Rome, I don't think any of them would have stood up either. Okay, why? Because they really didn't know the doctrines very well. They really didn't understand all, how all the puzzle pieces fit together. They had some neat people. They had some smart people. They had some folks that were, had been persecuted, and you could tell they were genuine people. But they also had a couple of other things that were troublesome. How do I know that? In chapter 16, he says, you know, he warns them at the end in chapter 16. He says, there's other people that have crept in, and they'll say things that are not good. They have a different agenda. So we know that the Apostle Paul is dealing with real people that are living in a real situation not too different from ours today. We have lots of information. We have lots of voices saying lots of different things. In fact, if you want to hear more of a certain thing, you can even bring it up on your phone and you can hear the speakers that say things you like. And we have the power to be able to turn it off if we don't. We can get up and leave if we don't. We can even leave a church if we want to. Why? Because we have freedom. Or as, as uh, some have said, we have individualism. Now, when you look at this particular text in Romans 12, uh, two weeks ago I was explaining to you uh, this transformation. You see, we used to be like this, but now we're like this. If you could bring up the butterfly picture, I want you to be able to see that this is the way that we were. And hopefully to one on the right is the way that we are. But are some of you still in the cocoon? I like some of you are thinking about it. <laughs> now, is a caterpillar cute? That's a loaded question. You know, do you want to remain a caterpillar if that's what you are? You know, the whole point would be is that God has designed us not to crawl forever, but to fly. Uh, and if, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 41, it talks about that you'll mount up with wings as eagles and you'll soar. You don't have to stumble and fall. And so the idea that, that we find in Romans chapter 12 is this idea of transformation. God is going to take you from the sinner that you've been and transform you into the saint. And if you want to see some, some of the other parts of this transition, is God is awakening you from being dead to being alive in Christ. And when this transformation takes place, you don't stay the same. Now, some of you that have been married for a lot longer than I, let's say you've been married for 50 years. 
If I went to your spouse, and I see a couple of you are, has, has the person you married changed? Have you changed in that marriage? Or are you exactly the same? And of course, logically, we'll say, well, age changes some things. You know, but does your affection get more or less? Does your dependence get more or less? You know, do you get occupied with other things more or less? It, the interesting thing about transformation is that the Bible actually talks about it as if we're, we used to be this, and then we're totally new. Uh, Paul uses the term, uh, here he talks about metamorphosis, but in, in 1 Corinthians he talks about uh, when we become in Christ, we become a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things become new. And so you have this big change that takes place. If you go to 1 Corinthians 10, the big change is that when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, but then I grew up. When I became a man, I put away the childish things. You see, the transformation is like that. You can't go back to it. You can't hit reverse and back it up and say, oh, I just want to be back in my sinful days again. No, when you've met Christ... You've moved from being the caterpillar in sin to being the butterfly that soars through the air, that radiates a beauty that is unparalleled. It's pretty amazing. Paul uses the term metamorphosis or change. Now, at the beginning of chapter 12, he begs all of us, hey, anybody listening to me, especially you in Rome, I, I, want you, I beseech you that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. In other words, hey, you've got a few years left in your life. Some of you might feel like you only have a few minutes left. Okay? But if you've got 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever it is that you've got left, he says, I beg of you, that time that you have, offer it to God as a sacrifice. And it's almost like that picture in the Old Testament, they used to bring a lamb that was alive and put it up on the altar to kill it. But now in the New Testament, after Jesus spread, shed his blood, no more death. He says, while you're alive, offer your life. It's beautiful. And he says, when you offer your life, guess what happens? You don't stay like the world. You're not going to conform to this world, but you're going to be transformed. And last week, I was, or two weeks ago, I was emphasizing there was three things. The parts of transformation is that you, you see your rightful place in God's plan. You're God's. And that's why you present your body to him, because it's already his. Secondly, you see the ugliness of sin in this world. Don't be conformed to this world. In other words, he says, look around you. I mean, if you look at what's going on in, in, uh, in Florida right now, um, it was very, very interesting that there was a, the legislature is actually voting for morality. And there's private companies that are actually saying, no way, Jose. We want to be able to do what we want to do. And we're not going to have anybody tell us those kind of things, those moral basis. And it's really a masterful maneuver, but it's going to separate the wheat from the goats. It's going to show you where, whether you're a, a transformed person or whether you're not. And the third thing you'll see in, in Romans 1 and 2, 12, 1 and 2, is uh, if you look at verse 2, it says that you may prove what is the perfect, and uh, I'll use the text here, the acceptable and perfect will of God. And it's good. Wow. So I often talk about the ugliness of this world, but the beauty of God's will. Now, I don't know about you, but when you've been living this life, and I've got over five decades behind me now, I still can remember it, praise the Lord. 
but is life easy? How do you say that God has a perfect will that it's good for us? You know, he just said in Romans 8, just four chapters earlier, that God has promised that he'll work all things together for the good. To them who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. You see, this good and perfect will, it comes by, you get to discern it by testing, by going through troubles. Is this really great? I mean, I honestly think that what's wrong is that as Americans, we think we ought to have heaven on earth already. We think that everything ought to be fine already. And, and we, we don't even have patience for anything not going the way we want it to go. And sometimes we want to help out God like Sarah did to try to help and get a baby to be able to keep the promise that God had made that there would be a son. If you go back to Genesis, you're going to see that Sarah said, hmm, we're kind of getting pretty old. Let me help God out. I'll get my handmaid to go in and she can get pregnant. How'd that work out? They're still fighting today. You see, when you try to help out God, you're not helping out God. You're messing it up for you even worse. That's why the transformation, and that's the introduction here, is to say that God is the one who does the transformation. The only thing we get to do is to say, here I am, Lord, use me. Exactly what Isaiah chapter 6 said. Here I am. I'm presenting myself. You need to do whatever you want to do. And God does a transforming work in us. Now, having given you that introduction, there are three things. I call this one, instead of the parts of transformation, this is the tools of transformation. How does God go about changing you? Now, if you were a piece of stone and somebody had, uh, wanted to carve a, a, a statue of a lion, how would you do that? Would you go up there and just spit at it every day? No, in order to be able to get the stone to be transformed into a, a, a statue of a lion like they have in front of the sight and sound, you know, that beautiful picture of the lion and the lamb, if you were going to change a, a big rock into that, you've got to have the right tools to chisel and get rid of what needs to go so that only what stays is supposed to stay. The tools for transformation, I see it in this text that follow up in verses 3 to, three to 8. And so following along with that, there's three things I want to show you. Kind of like the first is the scope of this transformation. How it really is impacting everything. So then I'm going to show you the significance that the transformation does because it connects you. And thirdly, we're going to look at the actual details of how God has ordained it that you should be chiseled away or you should be changed. Okay, now if you quickly follow along, you say, Pastor, is all that in there? Yeah, it's in there. Let's look. So in uh, verse 3, the text ends up explaining. Um, I've got it right in front of me here. Um, verse 3. For I say that through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, he starts off this whole explanation about how you're transformed by telling you what? Don't be so proud of yourself. Don't be so haughty as to think that you own it. Don't be so arrogant as to think that God needed your help. It's so interesting that the very first thing he says after being transformed and having the perfect will of God was to say, hey, you, settle down. Or maybe to quote John the baptizer, he must increase, I must decrease. Or to quote this bald pastor that you have, that when it comes to salvation, God is big and you are small. I am small. You see, when you start to realize this, that's the first place. 
So the three points that are being highlighted here, one has to do with that, as I said, the scope of transformation starts with, the, with your being, and then it goes on to your belonging, and then it goes into your uh, existing. And if you can follow, follow me with this, I want to be able to show you that the first part about your being is that he's focused on you as an individual. When you come to communion today, you cannot take communion for somebody else. Did, did you ever figure that out? Even if you have a cute little baby, you cannot take communion for a baby. And you can't take communion for your grandparents or your parents or your spouse. You can't. The relationship is with you. It's your relationship with God. And so when he says, for the grace that has been given to me, I say to every one of you as individuals, don't puff yourself up. Don't look in the mirror and say, oh, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. He says you ought to think with sober judgment, each person, each individual should, should look at the measure of faith that God has given them. Now, I could spend a little bit more time, but Paul already has in the first 12 chapters, and he's explained this great salvation. How much did you pay to get it? Did any of you get a good deal? Maybe 30 pieces of silver or something? You know I'm mocking. It's not by works, lest anyone would boast. It's not by your efforts, your performance, and it's not by your offerings. It's not even by your dedication, not even by your zeal. You see, this salvation is a righteousness that he gives to you, he imputes to you, that is not yours, but once he imputes it to you, it's yours. That's a big word, impute. Okay, all of us, according to Romans 3, Paul has already told everybody in Rome, you're bad! It's the same as saying you're a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. So when he gets to finally end to the end of chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, he says, but this is the good news. There is a righteousness that you can get that's not by your performance. It's not by keeping the law. It's a righteousness that God gives to you because he's holy and he is able to impute it to your account. It's the righteousness of another man who was perfect, who kept the, all the law. It's based on the covenant of works. There is a righteousness that he'll give to you because he'll also, in, that, in the obedience of Christ, he takes the punishment that you deserve. So once he takes your punishment, he gives you his righteous status. And my goodness, wow, that's how we have a relationship with the living and true God. That's how we come to the communion table and we get to partake. God in us. It's like you and me. He speaks to you as an individual. Now, this emphasis there, uh, I, I am fascinated with it because um, when, you're, when you're looking at this transformation aspect, God is at working in you, changing you, and modifying you, your behaviors so that everything gets different. And he gives you this ability to discern. And so there's three levels of this discernment that you get. At the end of verse 2, he says that you may prove or discern what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The three realms or the scope of this discernment comes in your view of self, your view of belonging, and your view of, as I said, your view of existence. You first have to see that you're a sinner saved by grace. And so once you're saved by grace, guess what? You don't have to go around saying you're a sinner anymore. You go around and say that you're a saint. Once you've been adopted into the family of God, you're a child of God. Even if you're a bad child, you're a child of God. 
And that's why, like in AA, when you go around and you say, oh, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. Yes, you may drink too much and you may be have tempted to it, but if you are saved, you don't have to go around with that being your primary identity. Your identity is that you're a child of God. You've been forgiven. Or as the one song that Big Daddy Weave said, I've been redeemed. That's your view of self. God has provided an identity for you. It is now in Christ. You can see it. You are not God, but rather you are God's. You're, you're owned by him. In fact, if you watch the Chosen series, that's the whole point. They quote from Isaiah, you are mine. It's a quote from God saying to his people, you are mine. Now, also, not only do you discern your individual status and your self-worth as being in Christ, you also discern your view of belonging. The text that we're reading that you've heard a few times, and I'll explain in just a moment, is to renew your, the renewed mind that you get has a new view of belonging. God has provided a connection for you. It is now essential within the church. You grasp your new connections because you're in the body. If you become a Christian... Are you a church member automatically? Trick question. It depends whether you're talking about being a part of the invisible church or the visible church. The invisible church is made up of believers throughout all of time. I believe Adam and Eve were the first church members. They were the ones called out from this world to be able to rest in Christ and understand the gospel. When they had the coat skins to cover up their sins, that was a teaching that God himself gave to them that said that with the shedding of blood, there will be some forgiveness. And even though it was a type and shadow, it was still pointing to the one. Even Eve was told that there will be one born of a woman who will crush Satan's head. Genesis 3.15. They knew in fact, when Eve had her first baby, the first one that came through the, through the pathway, that first child that was ever born to this world, she looked at that baby and said, he's the one. She was wrong. Cain was not the Messiah. Cain sorely disappointed, especially when he rose up in anger against his brother because he didn't have a right relationship with God. But Jesus is the second Adam who is without sin, that was the one born of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the curse of the law, Galatians 4, 4 and following. Now, having said that, I wanted to be able to focus on the, the view of belonging. You see, once you become a Christian, you do belong. You may not feel connected, but you still are. The visible church is where you actually gather like this, and you should be numbered with God's people. In fact, the scripture would say that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, there are a lot of texts that talks about your gods, not that you are a little God, but you are God's possession. Now, having understood that, there's one more thing that I had to see in this particular text, and that is when you discern with the renewing of your mind, you not only can see the view of yourself or your being, then secondly, you can see your belonging within the church, but you also can see your existing in this world, and that's where chapter 13 comes right on the heels. Why does he tell us about society and about politics and about government? Because when you understand this with renewed mind, God has pro provided an order for all of us in which we can operate to engage the mission field complete with the secular culture and with their godless worldviews. We have order, and that's why we have governments. That's why they're supposed to be a terror to evildoers, and they're supposed to promote which is good. And we rejoice when we get good ones, and we're all fleeing when we have bad ones, like they have, uh, like the battles that are going on in Ukraine, where you have rulers that are just doing this and this. Now, having said that, 
that was the second point of the sermon, is that, the, or I should say, the scope of it all is, is, is that. Now, I want to focus in on the text about the church. The renewed mind is, has a, is the tool that God has given for us to be transformed. God gave us the church. And in, in, not to confuse you, I'm calling the church the toolbox. Okay, if I were to bring in my toolbox here, uh, all the tools go inside the toolbox. And that's really what I see in this particular text. The apostle is telling the people in Rome, hey, there's this thing called the body. If you're in Rome, you only know that there's only one government. There's only one Caesar who is Lord. You're not supposed to be able to say Jesus is Lord there because you might risk being persecuted or put to death. But here, the apostle is writing to them and he says, look at the body. If you have your Bibles open, you can see the text very clear in chapter 2, uh, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same functions, so we, through many, are one body in Christ and individual members one of another. Now, having looked at that real quick, I just, be, you know, pastors love to preach on texts like this. Why? Because it shows the relevance of my job, my calling. I will always be in need. I may not always be paid, but there's always going to be a body of Christ. And God has already said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, that when he ascended on high after, after conquering death, and he rose to heaven and he gave gifts of leadership to the church, uh, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And so it was to equip the saints, that's you guys, to be able to do what God has called you to do. It's really beautiful, the dynamic that happened. He had to pay for sin, and then he changed the church to being a missional church rather than just being an existing body of believers. Now they have a, a focus and a purpose. And when I look at this particular thing, this church, it is, there's five things told us about the church. And I found it interesting that the word is missing in the text. Did you see the word ecclesia in there? No, he, the, the, the apostle... To the people at Rome, they don't have any church buildings. They don't have a lot of things going on. And so what I'm telling you is he uses the metaphor of the body to be able to show them how they belong, how they are connected. There's five things that I want to highlight here. There's one unit. There are many parts in this one unit. There are many functions being accomplished by this one body, this one unit. Now, all parts are linked together in that one unit, and all, all the functions are important in that unit. Now, let me go through that just a little bit more for you to be able to see how you connect. Here's number one. How many churches are there? You can answer this. The Bible tells us the answer. Very good. Isn't it weird that you have a hard time answering that question? Because in our culture, we have so many denominations and we have so many churches. I mean, you can drive down this road and you can find another one here or there. Uh, I mean, it's so easy to find churches. But there is only one Church, just let that sink in for a moment. Whenever I talk about the one church, I'll call it capital C, the church. And in the Apostles' Creed, we always talk about the one ecclesia, the holy Catholic church. Okay, there is only one true church, and there's one entity. Now, there's many different expressions. There's different local churches, and, and they have different things uh, based on different parts of the world that you find yourself in, like the church in Ukraine and the church in the Dominican. There's a lot of differences. Uh, there's, there's some nuances, but we're all part of one church. Why? Because there's many parts in this one body. 
When you think through that, it is fascinating. Many parts. Hands, fingers, toes, elbows, you know, knees. You know, and then I didn't even get into, there's the circulatory system, there's the respiratory system, and there's the excretory system, and there is all these other systems. Your body is amazing. And when you think about the body of Christ, Paul is trying to tell them there's many parts in it. And each of these parts have functions. Many functions to be done, and that's what God's designed. You know, some of, we were praying for the one fellow in our church that's connected to be able to get a new liver. Why aren't we praying that he gets a new finger? Because what's going on is his body needs a new liver in order to be able to function and to clean the things out to do what a liver does. And if he doesn't get this new liver, then he's going to end up not being able to have the body function. And that's the third part here is all parts are linked together. There is an interconnectionalism. And that's why you hear that text, if one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. Do we really? Are we really hurting for the big C church when we realize that some Christians are really suffering in the Ukraine? Some people are really suffering in the Dominican. Some people are really suffering in Delaware. All parts are linked in one unit. And the fourth one is all the functions are important. Now, there are some parts of the body that you might go to a certain doctor and they say, oh, take out your tonsils or take out your appendix. I got a guy here doing teeth. You can take out a tooth too. Now, are all these things important? They all are important. Sometimes it's better to do without one of them, though, because there's other things that can compensate and you can, you'll be better off if you, instead of having an infected one or a broken one or something like that. But it is interesting how the scripture here is telling us every person in the body of Christ is important. You don't need to just pull them out and say, all the functions are important. It is taught over and over and over. I want to just highlight, Paul wrote the same thing to the book of Ephesians. If you could bring up chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, you can see it quickly here where he, where he argues that... Uh, um, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called into one hope, okay? And he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you get the idea that the apostle writes, the same guy is writing to the church in Ephesus, he names the idea of the church there many more times in Ephesus than he did in Rome, but he says the same concept. Do you see it? There's one church, and you belong. The third point that I want to highlight in this sermon that's coming through here is that there is also, um, there's not only a toolbox, but there's tools in the box. And this is what I was a little bit surprised at when I looked at the text. So if you'll look with me to chapter 12, where he says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. This is what I got kind of like the slap in the face. Paul is telling the people in Rome, use the giftedness that God gave you. You're already in the body. If you're a Christian and you've been, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ, you've already presented yourself to be used. Now use the gifts that he gave you. Some of you are saying, well, I don't know what he gave me. We can help you. Sometimes it's pretty interesting. My son is, is at a uh, fellows program and uh, they did an exercise down there that was a little scary. They, they have three different dorms, 
And so in each of the dorms, they did the gift mix test by asking the people that you've lived with for five or six months, what gifts do you have? They didn't tell who said what. You know, be so if I was coming up to Jesse and I've known Jesse now for six, six months and I'm writing, well, these are the gifts that Jesse has. Do you think they would be accurate? Do you think you know the people around you? The text in scripture doesn't say you have to. It does say by your fruit you shall know them. You'll be able to recognize people that are true Christians and those who are not. But he says God has gifted everybody in the body with an ability, uh, each according to a measure of faith. You read that already. And so now when he explains the tools that are in this box, there are two main categories. I was calling it one on the top shelf and one on the bottom shelf. The top shelf is about the prophecy and the bottom shelf is about service. If you look at your text there, you're going to be able to follow along with me in verse 6, having then gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us. In other words, God's extended grace to give you something. You're not a nobody. You're not invisible. You have a place. Just like if you're building a Lego set, every brick is needed. And if you don't have all the bricks, you feel it. Just like if you have a puzzle and you're missing a puzzle, the puzzle doesn't feel complete if you've lost a piece. He says... God has put you in this body, and he has these two main categories. If prophecy, then in proportion to your faith, and if service, then in our serving. Now, prophecy, I, I just want to explain to you real quick, is a recognizing of God's will. We're supposed to be able to do that in verse 2. After we've been transformed, we, our mind is renewed as we're into the word of God, and we understand the will of God, what is good and perfect and, and, uh, and acceptable. In God's sight, divine will. We can see with our eyes of faith and with spiritual maturity, we're able to grasp it. It's really neat when you look at prophecy. It's not just going around saying, you know, oh, I think it's going to be like this. Or since I've lived in Rehoboth, if you go down Route 1, right through town, there's somebody that's got a big hand out front that says they're a palm reader. I wonder how they stay in business. The way that you get prophecy is you look into the word of God. It's revelation from God. If you want to know what's good and acceptable and perfect will of God, make sure your life matches up with the word. It's so simple. But he says if prophecy, if, the, if, if you're going to be able to know what God has revealed, study what he has revealed. Now, but then he says the second part and the other shelf of the toolbox is the serving. And he gives us five things that, that you might even evaluate yourself, evaluate yourself whether you have, whether you're, you're the tool. So I'm, when I picture this toolbox, I was going to bring a screwdriver, a wrench, you know, um, you know what, what other ones? Hammer. Some of you really think about hammers. Uh, a saw. <laughs> Look at all those tools. And now, which one do you want to be identified as? You know, God has given you gifts to be able to accomplish the purposes that he has in this world at this particular time. So you can know what is good and acceptable and perfect and where you fit into that. And so when he goes through these five things, there's teaching. What is teaching? Is this somebody making up stuff? No, it's somebody who knows, who has studied, is able to pass it on to somebody else. If you look at exhorting, exhorting has the idea of kairuso in it, which is to, to call out. You know? And so when you exhort, you actually, it's almost like pointing a finger at them. There's a sense in which you're telling them, you need to do this. You know, there's a challenge within that. So he who exhorts in his exhortation, you just don't say, oh, well, nothing matters. No, you try to inspire and challenge people, okay, the uh, one who contributes. You know, this is a great gift. If you have the ability, the gift of generosity, 
Man, we love those things. But that usually means that you have something to give. But it's a, it's a joy when you see a need and you try to meet it. There's one particular person in this church who is constantly taking food to the needy. It is so cool. It just happens. And why does it just happen? Because God has given this person the ability to contribute. Now, there's also the ones who lead. Now, these are not necessarily the same ones who are teaching, but they're people who are saying, follow me, let's get it done. I saw some of that happening when we did the church cleanup this yesterday. You know, you come to the church and, and all of a sudden things get finished. Did they just get finished by chance? No, somebody said, hey, this needs to be done. And they said, come do this. Or they maybe told you to do something. The one who, uh, the last one there is who, the one who acts with mercy. Somebody who takes notice of somebody that hurt him. Almost like, you know, when we taught in the Sunday school class about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, just like the Levite and just like the uh, Pharisee, they saw the need. But only the Good Samaritan did something about it. This guy is the, the one who does mercy. He does it joyfully. He does it with cheer. Now, when you look at those tools that are in the toolbox, what ends up happening? You see people being transformed. When folks that God takes out of this world and he saves them, just like he did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not a nice guy. He was killing everybody in Acts chapter 1 through 8. And in chapter 9, we find that God changed him. God made him a new creation. And even though a lot of people had trouble believing it, they finally did, and they saw what God did in changing that, transforming that little, that guy to where almost everybody in the world knows about Paul. Almost everybody has heard some quote from that man. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing what God could do in that transformation. And he gave him these different gifts. And did Paul say, I'm not going to do it? He struggled a little while, but he ended up saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Where are you? The cross that stands before us is a reminder that the, the living sacrifice that is supposed to be expected of you is not a dying sacrifice. Jesus already died. If you understand the significance of Calvary, I call it the greatest moment of all time. When you get that, then your whole worldview changes. When I turn on the news and I listen to people, that whatever channel you listen to, I try to hear different voices all the time to see what they're saying. What I hear them saying is they don't know Jesus. What I hear them saying is they're trying to cling to power. What I hear them saying is they have a different agenda. They have a different concept of what heaven is. And it certainly isn't what Jesus has gone to prepare for us. And when I see people pushing this other stuff, it makes me sad. But you are a part of the church. Do you see it? Jesus went to the cross to save you individually. When he saved you, he included you in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. And he gave you special gifts. You may not have some of them that are so flamboyant, some of you may have the gift of being able to pray. Some of you may have the gift of being an encourager. You may be able to drop a note to somebody at the right time. Some of you may have the ability to put some sugar in somebody's mouth and cause them to stop murmuring for a minute. 
Some of you are able to put up screens for movie night. Some of you are able to do wash dishes. All of these things are a part of the body of Christ. But the, the most important thing is not that you just use the gifts you have. The most important thing is to know the Savior. If you know Jesus, then everything else that I'm talking about, using the gifts, is a delight. It is not, an, it is not a punishment. God has put you in this world for such a time as this. Mordecai's words to Esther, they echo exactly what Paul said in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship, his handiwork, created now in Christ Jesus as new creation to be doing things that God has before ordained that we should finish. You are, God has given you tools. You are a part of the toolbox and we have a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to let them know of the love of Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll bless the message today and I pray you'll prepare our hearts for communion as the elders come up to the front row. Lord, I pray that we will realize that if we are in Christ, that we already are a reasonable service, our, our worship is to be able to present ourselves to you because it's, it's, it's not merely logical. It doesn't make sense if we didn't. Lord, you saved us. You redeemed us. We are yours. And we are a part of your body accomplishing the things that you have given us functional tasks to accomplish. We, pray, we praise you for this in Jesus' name.